I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Have you ever watched an animal documentary and found your senses perking up as the narrator perversely describes the mating rituals of said mammals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, and birds? You're thinking to yourself, should I look away? Or should I lean in to the dirty, nerdy thirst traps of the natural world? And what if a hula hooping genius was narrating those fascinating tidbits of evolutionary biology? Well, in this episode, I speak with Perrin Ireland, a hula hooping animal storyteller, as we explore the incredibly fascinating diversity of sex in the natural world. We cover the range from afterglow cuddling to postcoital eating of their mates. We unpack what we can learn from the intimate interactions of the animal kingdom and recognize the projected stories we have created as to why animals centrally relate. This takes us all the way down the rabbit hole of the rigidity of science and what it takes to update old paradigms. Trigger warning, not all animal interactions are consensual, and we address that here as well. Perrin Ireland has spent the last decade exploring how animals make a living, how they make noise, have sex, and try to kill each other using language, line, and color to communicate the shocking realities of life on this planet. Her work is a collaboration with the natural world, scientists, and the viewer, whose engagement informs her visual and performance research. She has built an art practice inside scientific and policy institutions, telling stories situated between what we know about the planet and our belonging to it. She began by illustrating a marine biologist lab research at Brown University while earning a science degree. From 2012 to 2022, she created watercolor animated videos about climate change, oceans, and endangered animals at the Natural Resource Defense Council. Her work has appeared at many museums and scientific institutions. Find her recent work on Instagram. The Thirsty Science Weekly email newsletter is a great way to stay up to date on the latest animal drama she draws. So get your hula hoops and join us in this hip-thrusting and mind-blowing episode. Welcome to the Gently Used Human, everyone, and welcome to my dear, sweet, amazing guest, Perrin. I just want to say you are the queen of thirst traps of science, and I just want to hang out with you all day and nerd out. So I'm hoping we can do that today. But I also want to say that I love the fact that you are a multitasker to the extreme situation where you are sharing the most curious facts about animals and jazzercising with a hula hoop at the exact same time. And I live for it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's very fun to be here. I'm excited. I am so excited. Can you tell us first, because I think like the hula hoop, it was a brilliant ad. Like, first of all, the, everything you say, I would go to a museum for, like in all your videos on social media. But the fact that you added the hula hoop, I don't know, it just, it adds a layer of brilliance that excites me to the oomph degree. So where, where did the hula hoop come in and sharing all these like amazing facts about animals? And I think honestly, so many of my best creative ideas have started as accidents and because, or just these sort of spur of the moment, let's try this thing. And I tend to be a little suspicious of people that will tell you otherwise, but <laughs> so much of my work is such a collaboration. So really I posted 
a Hulu video where I was talking about, I had just learned that octopus dream and that scientists are learning that they dream because they are flashing the colors that they flash when they're awake. So when they're hunting, when they're afraid, whatever, I don't know the exact color correlation to emotion, but they're flashing those colors while they sleep. And so scientists have started deducing that they dream while they sleep and they are having elaborate dreams, which might indicate a sense of self in abstraction, which we tend to limit our appreciation of other animals having that. So I posted this video where I just talked about that. I was listening to some music and I hula hooped and I actually posted it to stories. And a friend of mine who's a performer and actor said, this needs to go to main grid. So I put it in the grid and people responded strongly. And I did this little joke. I did the hashtag then thirsty science because basically I have been making stories about science for my whole career, and I wanted to see if I really thirst trapped it up for you, if I just did the thing that is so explicitly about getting you to look at me long enough that you'll listen, will you listen? And they were like, we will. So (laughs) that's how it started is just kind of pandemic boredom playing and it grew into this whole other thing. I love it. Could you imagine if our third grade science teachers just started like (laughs) fucking hula hooping every time they were talking about like biology and deconstructing bonds and, you know, like chemistry, like, ah, it would work. I know. I know. Are you a fan of the Grease movies, the Grease franchise? Oh, Grease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you watch Grease 2? I did. Okay, well, I'm a, I think Grease 2 is profoundly underrated. I am Changed a Grease my mind. 2. Oh, my God. But do it while hula hooping. I would love to. <laughs> Maybe I'll make a special reel inspired by this podcast where I just talk Grease 2 because I okay. love it. But they have yeah. this incredible song, Reproduction, where they take over a science class and they sing a really sexy song about plant reproduction. And when I was a kid, I remember thinking, if we could talk about how much sex is happening and how wild it is, this could be more fun. But it's this whole, you'll have to, I'll send you the song reproduction after. They say, make my stamen go berserk. Oh my God. Yes. Make my stamen go berserk. It's hot. Yeah. 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 Do you remember Bill Nye the Science Guy? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I had the biggest crush on Bill Nye. I can't remember if I talked about it in a previous episode, but I had a friend who lived next to Bill Nye and I would just like stand outside and hope that he would see me so I could like <laughs> totally like science flirt with him. Incredible. But I love, yeah, I mean like making science fun, making it interesting, it is, and then making it a thirst trap. You just took it to a whole new level. <laughs> well, it already is a thirst trap. I just it is. capitalized it is. on it. You're right. I mean, the content that you, and we'll get deeply into that content for those who are listening, the content that you share and you narrate is like, it is a thirst trap. I mean, you're literally talking about the curious coupling and sex of animals and and all the, the, the most interesting facts that I just get so excited. I get overwhelmed in watching your videos. Like, there are times when I have to, like, just tell myself to go to bed because I keep <laughs> watching them. I keep binge watching them. like... And even in prepping for this podcast, I was like, where do we even begin? Is it with wombat poop or cockroach sex? Or like, I don't even know. There's just so many good stories and facts out there about yeah. that you're sharing. I think being overwhelmed is an appropriate response. It's, And for me, it's really about swooning and feeling. It makes me feel so grateful to be on this planet at this moment 
in a planet's evolutionary life, the idea that life is that creative really moves me. That there are all of these versions to solve the same problem. It feels to me like life force, life itself, evolution, whatever your philosophical orientation or spiritual orientation is to it was basically like, hey, I'm going to show the fuck off. Like, oh, you thought that was cool? Watch this bit. Like, she's just like, boom, bang, bang, with every option that she comes up with. She outdoes herself. It's like she was in competition with herself to make the craziest possible ways for life to make more of itself. And that makes me feel a lot less lonely and really titillated and excited to be a sentient member of the Earth community right now. Especially at this moment in technology and science where we can watch these things better than ever. We have genetic advancements that allow us to understand it better than ever. What a cool time to be alive to learn all this. Yeah, it truly is. To go back for the hula hoop for a moment before we get into <laughs> yes, the thirst traps yes, of science itself. I wanted to, I don't remember if I've ever shared the story with you, that I, in second grade, won the third place in the hula hoop contest at my elementary school. And it is something that has stayed with me my entire life. Amazing. I can't remember if I told you. But so when I got my first office working as a, like a therapist and I put all my degrees up on the wall and I also put that plaque on the wall that I got third yes. place in the hula hoop contest in elementary school. And I mean, even now I laugh at the fact that I put that up next to a bunch of master's degrees and PhD. <laughs> but, but what an gotta, inviting thing for people coming into I your know. office to be like, I oh, think, I see where the priorities are here. I think I can get down with this guy. The priorities are jazzercising with hula hoops. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean... Keeping it light, bright, and tight. Now, did you ever think... <laughs> Did you ever think of like alternatives like baton twirling or like, you know, like are are we evolving this into other forms of athletic entertainment? Well, this is where I'm very much an elder millennial because my understanding, although I do not go there, is that on TikTok, doing all manner of activities in the home while you tell people stories. Uh Uh-huh. My understanding is, and Jessica Valenti, who's a feminist writer, who's doing incredible abortion coverage through her newsletter, she does a feminist TikTok roundup every week. And she'll post videos where feminist TikTok, they'll like do a whole makeup video and they'll be putting on their makeup while they explain to you new abortion restrictions. So I think there is really cool widespread use of the tool of like, I'm in my house and I'm eating this soup. There's like an ASMR leg of it, I understand. And then there's like... I'm, you know, you're going to be with me while I cook this meal, but I'm talking to you about this other stuff. So I have wondered in other moments if there's something else I want to add to the mix while I tell people stories. And also people request a lot, a podcast actually, like, which I would do maybe just a little mini something, but where it's just my voice talking to them about, I don't know. So I don't know. Yeah. For now, it's a fun way for me to share little morsels as I research for my own book, which is illustrated, which is mostly how I identify as an illustrator. So it's these little physical jazzercise breaks from that. But yeah, maybe, you know, I got these things. I don't know if it's gonna, let me see if you've seen these, these bala bangles. Oh, so this is true. So I'm a mouser size bitch. Did you ever do that? 
What's a mouser size bitch? Saturday mornings, the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> Six thirty in the morning, I would wake my father up on Saturdays, and I would be like, "Let's go watch Mickey Mouse Club." He would go sit with me, bless his heart. Uh-huh. And there was a segment called Mouser Size, which oh was Jazzer Size for kids. That was I lived for it. And then I started doing Saturday morning jazz class because I was in a jazz company. But these bala bangles. You put on. Are they like weights? Like back yeah. in the 80s when we used to like run with weights? They're back. And they're chic they're and they're very millennial. This is millennial pink. Oh, millennial pink is all the rage. Yeah. So oh my maybe, gosh. maybe I'll it. do something with those. I feel like I should come visit you in Brooklyn <gasps> and we, we should just put them all over our body. The banglet will be like a banglet tribe. That would and, be so fun. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, I did not watch the Mickey Mouse Club. But my last show when I was a performance artist was called Disney Titillations. And I did a one woman show, which was me with 26 quick changes. And I transitioned of like, if the Disney princess was someone in real life, like what would it actually look like and sound like? Mm -hmm. And like Jasmine was, was a Long Islander and uh, <laughs> I love that. it was a very so wild, fun. inappropriate show, which I would never perform now. But in my provocateur stages of my life, it was indeed, quite... indeed, you have to go through. You really do have to go through your provocateur, your your thirst trappy stages. I see you're still in yours, so let's get down to business with it. I really am. I came to it aged. Yes, you're a late bloomer of thirst traps. That's right. <laughs> And I really appreciate that, <laughs> my elder millennial friend. That's right. Uh, so I'm, I'm here to talk about sex, specifically animal sex with mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. And where do we even begin in the, the long repertoire you have of unpacking the curious nature of sex with animals? What's your favorites? My favorites? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. That's a question you could come at a number of different ways. There's the ones where it's just sort of the zaniest, kookiest example. Love those. And I think for me, and and I know we've talked a little bit about this before, I tend to love the ones where it's... I worked in a lab that studied siphonophores in college with a scientist named Casey Dunn. And siphonophores are a colonial... Nidarian, or I might be wrong, they might not be exactly jellyfish, but they're a colonial invertebrate that is in the water column. And the idea with colonial animals, which reproduce asexually by budding more of themselves off, siphonophores do that and they stay in a mobile chain that moves through the ocean. And so in a David Attenborough special that I watched once, he says they're kind of potentially eternal, this animal, because they are, as one end dies, the other is just making more of itself. And Casey Dunn one time said to me when we were talking about animal sex, he said, you know, mammals actually have a really boring life cycle. It's a really boring life cycle. The way that other animals are having sex is much more compelling. And so one of the other ways I approach being interested in animal sex is what are the systems that are super mind blowing that we have a hard time even understanding because our entire sensory modality is oriented in this other way. So I've just been starting to dip a toe in the water of spider sex. Oh my God. Let's get down with spider sex. 
Well, I'm very new to it. So it'll be a, you know, I'm sure there will be listeners who can fill us in more in the comments. You're like a virgin of spider sex is what I'm getting. Yes. And I'm really a virgin of all this sex. So much of it is just me learning alongside people and just popping our knowledge cherries hand in hand. (laughs) So with spiders, the way that they, you know, spiders are, they don't see well. They're having a very sound and vibrationally centered existence. Uh And the males are much smaller than females, which creates all of these different challenges in having sex. So one of my recurring themes that I love from a kind of projected human feminist perspective is I love the animals where like, he's got to get in and out before he gets eaten Story by the life. female, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's either bringing her a sperm package that's full of nutritious, that well, he kind of secretes it from a gland near his anus or penis, but it's like, He brings her a package. So with cockroach sex and a lot of other insect sex, she gets given a package and this happens with, we call it dimorphism. So it's when the males and the females are very different sizes. So in spiders where the female, I think black widows function this way, where the female is much bigger. Sometimes the male brings her a package of food. He either brings her prey he's caught or in cockroaches, they sort of secrete this stuff that I would not want to eat from a gland near their anus that she is really excited to chow down on. This is like a dowry? Yes, it's like a dowry, but it's a meal she can eat right away. Wow. It's extra nutrition for her because she's going to go through the exertion, right, of producing eggs, which is viewed by science as being more energetically costly. However, my understanding from the latest and greatest is that we don't actually have that much evidence for that, which is very exciting, but we'll come back to that. So (laughs) he gives her this package. She's chowing down so that he can inseminate her from behind while she's busy eating. And he wants to get out of there before he then gets eaten. So I tend to be pretty tickled by that kind of sex. So if I get this right, he's distracting her with a dowry of sorts so that he won't get eaten while they fornicate. Yes. And then he can scurr away unharmed and having done the deed. Yeah, live to live to fuck another day. Live <laughs> to fuck another day. <laughs> now, there are some species where he'll like break off his dick inside her if he doesn't get away quickly enough to try to just like, okay, just take that appendage, but let me live. Or he'll wow. give her like a limb or something if she sort of turns on him and is hungry. But the other thing that fascinates me about spiders is that they are known to sometimes have heart attacks while they're having sex because my understanding, and again, just dipping a toe in this water, is that their sperm are not as mobile and fast paced as other animals' sperm is. So they are not moving into the female through the propulsion of the sperm. He has to kind of like rocket them into her with thrusting. And so what I read the other day is that some species, the males can frequently have heart attacks during the sex act because they're exerting themselves so rigorously. I kind of took us in a real like, well, let me tell you, Scott, the sex I like, he doesn't stand a chance. But there's a lot of other versions I also enjoy. I mean, first, I'm not analyzing you. So feel free to tell me all the type of sex you like. And Mm -hmm. I will just openly appreciate it. But let's talk about the other types of animal sex you enjoy. 
Is that the right phrasing there? Yeah, the other types of animals. Have, exactly. Yeah, well, we're yeah. always sort of in a dance with this of like, what does it mean that we're all so interested in this? And I think it's just perfectly natural. And I think without taking it too literally, it's really just about a menu of options in the world. Oh, yeah. That there's a lot of options for how we might pursue these relational acrobatics. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. I remember as a kid, my mom being obsessed with these turtles she saw having sex and the noises they were making. And she would retell the story over and over again at like every party. And it occurred to me as a seven-year-old, I was like, I wonder if they talk about themselves having sex in the same way, with the same excitement, or would they like to observe other people having sex in the same way they enjoy (laughs) talking about animal sex? I don't know, but animal sex is hot to trot. Animal sex is hot to trot. Animal sex is happening. It's happening a lot. And it's happening, I think, for increasingly complex reasons that are not quite as different as we have wanted it to be than the reasons we have sex. So I tend to really like examples of animal sex that is not procreative because I think it helps establish that these are exuberant, pleasure-seeking creatures that besides the kind of eat food, reproduce, keep babies alive narratives that we've given them, which is, you know, it's a lot of work. I also think that they do things for joy and pleasure. And so I tend to like sex that animals are having that's not procreative. So I've been spending a lot of time in the book Queer Ducks by my friend Elliot Schrafer and talking to him recently. And it's a book called Queer Ducks and Other Animals. It's a YA nonfiction book that explores the sort of diversity of sex in the natural world. And we've been talking about examples of same-sex, non-procreative sex in mammals. So bonobos are known as sort of the female hippie species of primate, they tend to have a lot of sex. It's been viewed as a way to avoid conflict over resources. And Franz de Waal, who's a primatologist whose work you may be familiar with, is a great communicator and writer. And he has a line that I really love where he says that some scientists talking about animal sex are like a convention of bakers that has agreed to collectively not use the word bread. (laughs) Like, why do we refuse to call it sex? So there's all these reasons people come up with for queer, pleasure-oriented animal sex. So the bonobos 
have sex eight times a day. And it is likely that it is forming social alliances. It's a way for these sort of feminist bonobos to maintain their hierarchies and they are getting off. Yeah. They're getting off. So I love bonobo sex. I love male dolphin gay sex. Dolphin sex is a source of endless fascination for me and they're my favorite animal. Tell me more about this dolphin sex. So when I was 18, after high school, I worked at a dolphin lab called the Dolphin Institute that is now no longer, but it was the research lab of a scientist named Dr. Lou Herman. And I don't know how much of the history of dolphin research you're familiar with, but I can give you a quick overview. I am a virgin to dolphin sex. Behave. I know. So dolphin research, there's a longstanding human fascination with them for obvious reasons. And there was a guy named John C. Lilly who really advanced a lot of our cognitive understanding of them in the 60s and 70s. And then as he was getting more involved in acid experimentation, his work starts to like go off the rails with them, which is this whole other story we can get into. But his, I would say, kind of intellectual inheritor and carrier forward really of deep work about how dolphins experience the world, how dolphins navigate the world, dolphin communication, cognition, memory, capacity was carried forward by a guy named Dr. Lou Herman. And I just kind of wound up at his lab after high school as an intern. And there were three dolphins that were living there. There was a male named Tiapo, there was an older female named Akekamai, and there was a female named Phoenix. And we, as little lab interns, we would go to the lab and you would do 24-hour observations on these dolphins. And as a caveat, I'll say, I'm a lot more interested in dolphin research in the wild today. These are wide-ranging oceanic animals built for incredibly long migrations. And the size of tanks that they were in is not something I would recommend going forward. And not to mention the sensory stimulation and learning. But we would go and we would do nighttime observations. And dolphins are crepuscular slash nocturnal, and they would just be going at it at night. I mean, it would be like, because dolphin sex is essentially this. That's about how long it takes. I mean, they have prehensile penises. So they have like thumb penises because it's Mm -hmm. two torpedoes trying to have sex with each other in the ocean. So you have to have a penis that can grab. So they have just a ton of foreplay. We used to do in OBS, we had this amazing veterinarian, I forget her name, but she would call it a Ross Jenny. And it's, that was her shorthand for the term was rostrum to genitals. So that's a dolphin will put its rostrum in the other dolphin's genitals and make these clicks and beeps. They basically, their oral sex is echolocating wow. in each other's genitals. There's a guy named Bruce Bagamill who wrote a book called Biological Exuberance in the 90s. Have you heard of his work? No. It's to this day, the compendium of gay animal sex. It is the Bible. And he has kind of, I can't track him down. Like he's sort of gone away again. And it's not clear what his research affiliation was at the time, but he's such an icon to me. And he has, there's these amazing line drawings in the book. And there's one where these dolphins are doing like a boner to blowhole situation between two males. So gay male dolphins, I've just been learning about from my friend Elliot, one of the major social organizations in bottlenose dolphins is these groupings of kind of gay male kingdoms, as Elliot calls them, and they are having sex with each other 2.38 times an hour. They're doing incredible feats, like the rostrum is in the other dolphin's genitals, and it's like pushing him up out of the water in these incredible acrobatic leaps. Like, 
The thing I love about dolphins is they're truly incredible athletes and gymnasts, and they don't hold back in their sex lives with those capacities either. So there's this kind of like, watch what I am capable of physically and eat your heart out while they're doing all of this. Yeah. So it's thought to be a sort of social cement and a social glue, these bonds between males. And then in the last couple of years, there's a a scientist named Patricia Brennan, who's been studying the clitoris for decades. And I believe, I don't know if she was on the team, I'm forgetting who led this piece of research, but there's, there's new evidence that the dolphin female clitoris has more nerve endings than ours. So it it is believed to be able to experience more sensation. And scientists, because they want to be careful and they want to be sort of putting forward the next advancement in the research and not drawing too many conclusions, all of the papers were like, it is possible that they experience pleasure in these areas. And it's like, okay, dolphins have whammo clits. Like, yeah, they do. But they also have labyrinth vaginas because if you have these groups of male dolphins that are cruising the ocean, there's a fair amount of coercion and non-consensual stuff that happens. And so oh no, in multiple different animals, yeah. I mean, that just ruined my like innocent dolphin fantasy. Just that they're all super nice and like consensual. Yeah. Wow. Not so. There's a lot of stories I share that are right on the edge and grappling with not only do we get to come in and celebrate these things we love about animals, also they reflect to us things that are painful to grapple with about what's happening in our own societies too. But one of the things I think that's sort of interesting evolutionarily in these instances, and this happens with ducks too. So a lot of people, you know, when I'm at a cocktail party and they're like, well, what do you do? And it's like, okay, here we go. You know, it's not like I am a doctor. I am a nurse. I mean, I, w- I would have a lot of follow-up questions for a doctor or a nurse, and I'm sure those people get shown body parts and stuff that they don't want to deal with. But we do. <laughs> with ducks, a similar thing happens where there's coercion. And both duck and dolphin vaginas are sort of labyrinth. There's these sort of trapdoors, there's these dead ends. I mean, duck vaginas are famously like nooks and crannies and you can get lost in there. Basically, it's their way of deciding if you and I have had sex I didn't want to have, I'm not going to let you inseminate me. Wow. Which is, of course, where we diverge from them mightily because humans don't have that capacity, despite what you might hear Republican politicians (laughs) saying. We cannot decide if we get pregnant from rape, but dolphins potentially have the capacity to shut it down if they had an engagement they didn't like. Wow, that is mm-hmm. some evolutionary like realness. Yeah. That is some development. Mm-hmm. Shit. Yeah, there's this history in science writing of calling it the evolutionary arms race of genitalia. And I think mm-hmm. as a feminist, I'm like, yeah, bring in your military metaphors, guys. Okay. But you do see this real conversation happening. I mean, look, we're understanding the nature of nature. That is also part of being a uh, gently used human. Yeah. And endless drama, I would say. Endless of drama. Of nature and of being a human. Oh, my God. Speaking of, what would you say were like the top three most addicted to drama animals in the kingdom? Oh, that's such a good question. The real drama dramas. 
The one that's coming to mind, I'm going to share about this one first and we'll see if others come up because I have to say by and large, I, I mean, they're definitely our dramatic animals. So the first one that's coming up is the naked mole rat. That would have been my first choice too. Yeah. You agree? Yeah. 100%. Right? Tell right. me why you think so. Because they're naked and they're moles <laughs> and they're rats. But why would you choose them? <laughs> have you ever seen a naked mole rat? I actually have. What they look like? Yeah. yeah. So it's a little bit distressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's very distressing. And they're living their lives in these colonies. What I what I find dramatic about them is that they've taken, it's almost like seeing this mammal take the model of social insects but apply it to mammals in this insane way where this, so there's a naked mole rat queen and she is in social insects. They pheromonally prevent. So there's a queen in a social insect colony, like your termites or your ants. And she is pheromonally controlling her worker females. They are not reproducing because she's the only one that is reproducing in the colony. It's her genetic line. They're all her daughters. It's her genetic line that's going forward, but she's controlling that chemically. And they've done research on naked mole rats. And I was reading about this in Lucy Cook's book, Bitch, which I highly recommend. It's called Bitch. And the subtitle is On the Female of the Species. It's a divine book. Mm. So my understanding, and again, I do want to flag, like I make minute and a half long videos about all these animals because I have the attention span of a gnat. And basically once the video is over, I make no commitment to maintain the information. So We'll see. We'll see if any of what I'm saying right now, I'm just coming on to spin myths for you and whatever. It's fun. So naked mole rats, the female suppresses the reproductive capacity of all of her workers. However, scientists believe it is actually because they have so much cortisol rolling through their bodies because of her reign of terror that they are not able to reproduce. Like they're just so busy trying to not get in trouble because A naked mole rat queen, I think, moves around the colony like a a number of multiple factors more than the other animals in the colony because she's bullying all day to keep her workers in check and to maintain her dominance. So she has a dominance that is not through chemicals she's releasing while she stays in her breeding chamber, although she makes tons of babies throughout her life. So not only is she cranking out young, she's also patrolling her colony all day being like, you stay in line, you stay in line. Like they think that she is like shoving and nibbling and that that's how she maintains dominance. So to me, that's like a highly dramatic lifestyle. That's some mommy dearest shit right there. Exactly. That's really some mommy dearest shit. I think that antichinus are really dramatic in their sweet little way. So they are a marsupial that lives in Australia. They're the ones that have sex until they die, right? They have sex until they die. So, Or they die having sex, whatever you want to say. Right. Well, they actually die from sex because they like become gangrenous and they, they like <laughs> fuck themselves to death. Exactly. So all of the females in a given region go into estrus at the same time. And all of the males stop producing sperm at basically 11 months old. So they're in like a use it or lose it. They got to go shoot their shot. And it correlates with when the females go into estrus. So the males find them. And I've watched, so as an illustrator, 
Watching video is better than working from photographs. If I want to capture the animal in motion, if I want to get different angles on something, if I really want to work to tell a story, and I don't recommend YouTubing into kind of sex along the lines of the consent question. It's pretty athletic for these little guys and it's pretty tough. It's rigorous. So, I mean, he literally does it till he dies. So it can't be like gentle love making. Yeah. So he is trying to shoot his shot with as many females as he can. And they have this two week orgy and he, his, the talk about cortisol running through his body, immune system shuts down, gangrenous, fur falling off, drops dead at the end of that two week period, every male in the area. And the females can live for one or two more years. And she gives birth to a litter that has multiple fathers after that from all of those copulations. So I would say they're pretty dramatic. And, you know, again, back to dolphins, like they live in what scientists call fission fusion societies, which chimpanzees do also, which basically means, and I I don't know if I've never heard it said about humans, but I assume we do too. It basically means the dynamics are constantly changing. So it's just this constant alliance forming, alliance breaking. I'm with them. They're with me. We're doing this. We're doing that. Like, you know, these incredible photographs you see of dolphins hanging out with other kinds of whales and other kinds of dolphins. And it's like, I was doing research for this gay dolphin comic I did this week for my newsletter. As one does. As one does. As one does. I I actually went on a a date during it and they were like, what have you been doing this morning? And I was like, I'm working on a comic. And then I do get into it. I don't hide my life, but it's always just... uh... Anyway, so I was looking up photos of dolphins and I found this photo of a dolphin swimming with... It was a kind of small whale and I'm forgetting what kind, but it's like the way that the photograph is taken, they're all swimming sort of say to stage left, but like one of the whales is looking at us and one of the dolphins is looking at us. And there's just one dolphin in this pod of these small whales. And it's like, that dolphin came here to fuck. (laughs) You know that, you know that you can't deny that science. But there's an incredible Blue Planet episode that opens where like, and it's Blue Planet 2, just if you're, if you stand David Attenborough like I do, and you're like a super fan, Blue Planet 2, not the first series, where they basically come upon a massive orgy and listening to David Attenborough narrate it in this way that's like, we don't know what they're up to. We're not sure what's happening here. They've gathered for mysterious reasons. I really love. So I think dolphins are pretty high drama too. Oh my God. I just am rolling in the idea of David narrating an orgy of any sorts. And that way, if we can make a compilation of Mm -hmm. all the orgies he's narrated, that would just make my life. Speaking of thirst traps, I have a (laughs) Tumblr. I have a defunct Tumblr that was like Daddy Attenborough lying with animals because when he was, I mean, bless him, I think he's like 95. And I don't know if you've listened recently to the appeals he's now making at all of the UN climate change conventions, but to watch him now, the appeals, it's so beautiful and so painful to watch this person who has spent his life with these animals calling and begging based on the changes he's seeing. And it's been powerful for me as someone that has watched his work my whole life in recent years be like, yeah, thanks for talking about climate change now. I think he has felt no option but to shift to talking about it in the coverage they're doing. But I have a Tumblr that is just like, there was a time when he was more in the field 
where a lot of shots would pan over to Daddy David Attenborough, like lying amongst the sea lions. There's so many photos of that man reclining among animals that I just love. (laughs) So yeah, compilations to be made about him for sure. Uh, I can't wait to see your Tumblr account. Oh yeah, baby. It's uh, not been updated in a minute, but... Please update that. I mean, David, the whole chronological timeline of his career would be great in there. Yeah, it's true. So let's talk about cloacas. Cloacas? Cloacas. Cloacas. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share with us some of your favorites? My favorite cloacas. Your favorite cloaca stories. I think for me... It's more just about the fact that they exist, that like a lot of animals are moving through the world with just one hole that gets it all done. And we've developed all of this sort of exhausting architecture that inside the womb, everything has to go just right for it to come out in a certain way, right? Because humans, at one point in our embryonic development, we also have cloacas and we have evolved to have separations happen once we come out. And so I think for me... They call that the undifferentiated to differentiated. Exactly, right. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Yeah. Well, you said it much sexier than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's just the nerdery. The dirty nerdery in me, baby. Dirty nerdery. That should be... You got to get that as a hashtag. Dirty nerdery. There's someone I'm forgetting who has a talk nerdy to me podcaster show. I forget who it is, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's a good title. So I just love a cloaca period because it's just kind of funny to watch again with the videos. I mean, if my computer was ever subpoenaed and they were like, let's look at these Google searches. I don't. mm -mm. It's like puffins having sex. Video of puffin sex. I mean, the work for the dolphins, because dolphins, there's a lot going on on the internet about dolphins. You have to be careful. And so this week I was like, gay dolphins, like typing that into Google or gay dolphin sex. You have to really kind of, anyways, so writ large, I just am here for cloacas. I just, it's just a boop. That's literally how long bird sex lasts and it gets the job done. I think a cloaca I admire is the mm. platypus cloaca because oh, yeah. they're mammals with cloacas and they're kind of out here just representing the, talk about elder millennials, the elder mammals, your monotremes. They don't need to do a whole lot else. They're getting the job done with that cloaca. And that's, you know, really all there is to it. I'm trying to think of recent stories of cloacas that I've enjoyed. I mean, it's just efficient. It's just plain efficient. It's just plain efficiency right there. And there's something to me that's so honest about I diarrhea from the place I'm also going to have sex with you with. You know, it's just kind of animals don't, they don't hold back. (laughs) No. Speaking of gayness. (laughs) (laughs) No holds barred. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah. I mean, let's go to that. You know, some of my favorite, you've named some of your favorite books, and some of my favorite books are in the same realm. I love Evolution's Rainbow by Joan, was it Rowe Garden? Rough Garden, yeah. Rough Garden, yeah. Yeah. And Sexing the Body by our, Mm -hmm. I I think, our mutual favorite author, Anne Faust Sterling. Faust Sterling. And the confronting what they refer to as like created truths where like science is a social construction based on bias. And I think that's so apparent in 
when we start to really take off the filters of Darwin, so to speak, that we've been told and start to see the actual diversity and, you know, to shift from a idea of animals only procreate or only job is to procreate versus like, oh my gosh, they also like pleasure. It's just such a radical disruption in the fundamentals of biology, of science, as we have been taught. And I want to kind of talk about that. Like, it's not like we're going to get into some severe anti-Darwinistic shit here, but like disrupting science and disrupting the created truths that we might not even know were created. Which is so exciting. It's really fun. It's a scary thing. And it's fun to be like, what needs rewriting? Yeah. I mean, I can say even one of my favorites, like I was talking to my niece a couple of years ago and she was in fourth grade or fifth grade science or something. And she was talking to me about what she was learning in school. And she was like, I learned that males are males because they have testosterone and women have are women because they have estrogen. And I was like, well, that's not right, honey. She goes, but that's what it says in the book. And I was like, well, your book's wrong. And I was like, according to Anne Fausto Sterling (laughs) and other pioneers in uncoupling bias and science, like we really understand like in one of the war wars, we discovered that cis men also produce estrogen and that they hid it so as not to seem weak to the enemies whom they're at war with. And I was like trying to explain that to her. And like that sort of bias has continued as our fundamental understanding of science. And that's a created truth as opposed to the true reality of science. And there's so many of those. Yeah, there really are. And it's, you know, it's not a coincidence. Like who was in the room when the stories got told the first time? Who was kept out of the room? I've not read the book by some dudes. I forget their names. uh, Leviathan and the Air Pump. It came out maybe in the early aughts, and it's the story of kind of the first scientific experiment, which is this experiment that happens where this big air pump is being worked. And the the real thing about that experiment is that the first scientific paper emerged from it, which was reviewed by colleagues. It was written, a record of what happened during the experiment was written down. It was reviewed by colleagues and it kind of entered circulation. I think the Royal Society might've existed at that point. So it sort of gets taken up by the community, gets feedback. So this is establishing what an experiment is. And Donna Haraway does this incredible writing about it when she's, you know, talking about her theory of situated knowledge is that who makes the knowledge and the gender, race, class experiences they've had shape how they see the world and the questions that they're going to ask. And she talks about how in the room when they were working that air pump, it's something that we all learned in school. I don't remember what they were doing. I don't care. They're working that air pump. Everybody's so pumped. They write down the first scientific paper, the record of what happened. There were slaves working the pump who are not written down in the book. And there were women in the room whose names were not written down. And so Donna Haraway uses this example to basically be like, from this foundation, the way we've produced science has not told the whole truth about who is or isn't in the room, how they contributed or didn't, what their perspective was, or what questions they might have asked if they were given the chance. And so it, again, is this exciting moment in the production of science where we have so much 
improving to do still. And I think there's an additional set of folks in the room asking different questions. And there's people that have, were so lucky, have spent their careers really wanting to uncover the people quietly working away whose work has fallen into obscurity, who were poking holes and asking questions or are doing that work today. So my friend Kaya Tomback, I think that the paper is out now where she recently basically went back through a ton of data also because we have more and better data today than we've ever had before. And she really re-examined Darwin's assumption that male mammals will be bigger than female mammals because his idea was, you know, the male mammals are competing to have sex and so they're going to be bigger than female mammals. And his examples were the pinnipeds and carnivores and bison. And Kaya puts forward that if you keep studying bison and pinnipeds and carnivores, that idea will be right and true. But if you look at the broader diversity, right, in bats, bats make up most of the diversity of mammal species. There's a ton of bat species. So if you're looking across mammal species and you take that data into consideration, bats and rodents make up most of mammal species, and they are not having male-male competition that centers on size in order to have sex with females. And many bat species are the same size across gender. And we're, we're in the bi right now. So she references the work that a woman scientist whose name I'm not going to remember produced in like 1979 that has just like not really been referenced, not really changed the game. It made an impact, but it's so cool to see scientists today being like, and also actually there's a precedent for poking these holes and asking these questions. And a new piece of work that Kai is doing that I'm really excited about per what you were saying before about definitions of gender, another one that comes up a lot is that sort of animal sex, right? So in nature, we're not sure what animals' genders are. We can't ask them. And Joan Roughgarden puts forward the idea that an animal's gender is how they perform their sexual role and that there are a lot more genders in the animal world than we give credence to. But if we're sexing animals, quote unquote, And again, animals continue to push back on the idea that there's a binary in the sexes also. And we can talk about examples of that. One of the ways it's often done is who produces which gametes. So like who made the sperm in this scenario and who made the egg? Oh, that gets complex. It gets super complex and it's traded and it's right. There's different stuff going on. But the other thing that Kaya is doing that I'm so excited about is so much of Darwin's sexual selection theory and the scientists that have followed suit reinforcing Darwin's ideas. And again, to all the Darwin heads out there, hey, he did good work. Like, we agree. Great job on a lot of shit, my guy. It's just that it's time to update some stuff. And it's just that we now know that Darwin didn't include a lot of stuff he knew because he knew how controversial these ideas would be. So like, it's also even bringing in more of Darwin than he let be in some of these books, which we can talk about in a second. But basically, Kaya is starting to wonder, this idea that Darwin has that making eggs is really energetically costly. So the females, their whole orientation to sex is around how much care they're going to put in their young and how costly it is to produce their eggs, which we see filtering out into our our concepts of human women too. We're just, we're made for devotional care of our young and we have sex with the least unbearable man, right? It's really just about like, what's the least bad? And Kaya is like, I want to actually study what the energetic investment is in the gametes and like really find out once and for all, is that so? 
And there's all this research scientists have been doing for the last 40 years that shows it's not just that females are having sex with the least worst animal. It's that their choices over millennia have shaped how those very animals are. They've shaped the frequency and kind of incantation of male frog noises. Like frogs have come to be making sounds the way they do because female frogs liked it over millennia. They've shaped peacocks. Like female choice has actually made the world in a lot of ways that we don't talk about with that lens on it. And I think those conversations are really exciting. That's amazing. Isn't eggs, like in terms of gametes, like they're already done by the time you were born. And so in terms of energy expenditure, there is no additional energy expenditure. It's already been done in utero. That's right. Okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we got to get a real evolutionary biologist on here, but... When I studied embryology, that's that's, that's what it said. (laughs) Right. You come out with what you've got. You come out with what you got, whereas opposed to if you're developing sperm, it's a new continuous development cycle. Yeah. Right. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn. If that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. You know, there's this thing about the fear of updating science. Because so much of our construction of reality and our identities is based on old premises that perhaps are outdated. The same is like same as about stress. Our conception of what stress is, which was first defined almost over a hundred years ago, is not actually that accurate compared to what we now understand. But there's still sort of a rigidity and stain with like this very simple definition and and the idea that it's actually a bad thing where it's actually a biological process of adaptation and your body's doing such a good job and the body's rocking it your body's rocking it celebrate it from the scientists i talked to that's definitely still happening in the academy a lot of resistance to updating but i also part of why i like sitting where i sit is i'm super fascinated by how these scientific ideas come into the culture and how the mainstream media reinforces some scientific narratives, but also then it kind of becomes these 
literally like the Richard Dawkins version of the meme, right? Which is like a replicable small unit of something. They get memefied and it's really difficult to shift the ideas about some of these things. And that's part of why I think the role of science communicator, science storyteller, how I would self-describe can be really key because it's like, wait, actually the science has been yeah, sometimes the, the journal paper or the way that scientists have made conclusions needs updating. And also sometimes they presented a lot of nuance if you read the paper, but how it comes into headlines and the media can lose a lot of that nuance. So Franz DeWall talks about this idea that he talked about the concept of the alpha male and chimpanzees, and it has become a super incelly concept, right? The alpha male, like in sort of business and has been used in human culture in this way that we anthropomorphize it. Yeah, right. And now he talks about like, oops, I didn't quite mean for that idea to move into those spaces in that way. And it's actually been updated now that I've done more research. And I like, would love to kind of take it back. The same is true for the pecking order, the pecking order within birds that are more often when they're captured that they recreate. Right. And then we replicated these ideas or projected that back onto human social structures. Right. And this was, you know, when people say things to me when we're talking about animal sex, like, oh, don't dolphins rape, don't ducks rape. For me, that's a similar thing where it's like, Mm. yeah, and we should have a really slow, careful, thoughtful conversation about what we mean when we say that and how we're naturalizing that and what that does. Yeah. What else would you say to them in terms of that point? Yeah. So I will say that one of my books on my list is a book called, I think it's called Evolution, Gender and Rape. So there was a paper about rape that came out in the early aughts. And as you have probably surmised on this podcast, name recall, not a strength, but a couple of guys made a paper and they're great scientists. They made a paper or a book about rape in nature that a lot of feminist scientists were like, "Ah, ah, oh, oh, we have feedback. We have thoughts. We'd like to talk. Because it sort of put forward the, the idea of rape as an evolutionary adaptation. And so I have a lot more learning to do around this. So a bunch of cool feminist scientists and science scholars put together their response called Evolution, Gender, and Rape. And it's like next on my list. I'm so excited to understand the ways that people that really spend time with animals took issue with that in the way that they're thinking about naturalizing rape or not. I think what I would say to a human that would say something like that to me is along those lines of like, you know, I think when we talk about it being only natural that animals rape, that has dangerous implications for humans. And because humans are different, because we are world builders, because we have changed the shape of the world as of today, because we have the capacity to alter our environments, to do all manner of things. It means that we get to have a really different set of conversations about what power and violence and patriarchy are doing in our communities and how we want to work to change it and keep people safe. So, and those sweet people are just like, oh, I learned that dolphins rape, you know, like nine times out of 10, they're not coming at me in a conversation trying to sort of make it okay. But I think being careful about our word choice and also owning like, 
you know, I had a friend send me video from the aquarium. She took her kid, her toddler to the aquarium and the belugas started having sex, which is one of my favorite things. That is a fun YouTube wormhole is like aquarium videos where everybody's trying to have a, a family day at the aquarium and the animals are living their lives in captivity. And if you're a marine mammal who has sex multiple times an hour in a glass case, people will see it. So she sent me this video of it and was like, I felt really distressed at the aquarium today. I saw this happen. You know, the female didn't want it. He kept pursuing her. I feel really upset. And I think it's just important to, I don't think humans based on a lot of a pretty big sample size at this point of people responding to me on the internet, when I talk about animal sex, I don't think it's real to be like, we can't anthropomorphize. I just don't think that's real. I just don't think that's human nature. I think we tell stories about ourselves based on what we see in the world, these animals that we relate to. We can do that thoughtfully and carefully, but we still do that. So I think it's important to own like, I saw that, it distressed me. I learned this fact, it feels distressing. I learned this fact, it brings up painful memories. I'm going to talk to someone about that. Like I'm feeling triggered, right? Any of those things. I think it's okay to own and hold that and also to own that those animals can't tell us what's happening when that happens. And so we're not sure. And yeah, we can own a name that looks pretty violent and we're not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. There's a bit of projecting that's likely happening. And I really appreciate that. Like if you're having feelings, if you're being triggered, turn it back to you. It's just the same in in, in human interactions. It's like tune back in to what is present in your history, in your body in this moment and stay with that. It is paramount as opposed to depositing it all on something or someone else where you disempower yourself in the process because you can't move through something if you're projecting it all out at someone else or something else. So as a aquatic aficionado of sorts, I'm curious, do you know the leader of the orca militia, like the orca <laughs> group that is attacking yachts? Personally, am I in touch with them? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, but I've heard that their name is Gladys. <laughs> is that right? I think it's White Gladys they're calling I think them. it is Gladys, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Gladys? Yeah, we send letters. <laughs> So it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Your pen pals. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I wish that I knew Gladys personally. I mean, that's an amazing story. Yeah. And I also like how it's being captured in the news. And again, the projections and the, like the narratives we are writing on behalf of the animals. Yeah. The memes are just killing me. I saw one yesterday. I, I have spent a fair amount of time with the Harry Potter books and movies. And there was a meme that was like, this is J.K. Rowling's $29 million yacht. I don't know, some unbelievable yacht. And the person in the meme was like, Orcas, do you know where it is? Do you want to find this boat? Yeah, I think it's really fun for people to see Orcas fighting back, if that's what's happening. It seems to be a real unifying moment where people are excited to root on this underdog. And, you know, I... Just imagining, but also there's plenty of evidence that there are a lot of animals that can maintain memories, can maintain grudges, can take action on those grudges, have agency and individual choice making where they take actions to take care of themselves. 
I did see a meme that I thought was really powerful where someone was kind of saying, you know, when black and indigenous people destroy property, it's looting and rioting. But when orcas do it, it's righteous rebellion. So I do think the way we talk about these things and who we get behind is very much at play. And it's really fun. Especially if the idea is that Gladys is in charge, because we do know that's how orca pods learn. They learn from the matriarch. Yeah, that's right. And she shows them what to do. Yeah. And orcas, is it that sometimes even when, like when the matriarch dies, like the males sometimes just get lost and starve to death? Yeah, they can have a really hard time because they've been with her their whole lives. And yeah, there's a kind of social disruption that happens. And I was actually reading recently in the Southern Residence, I think people are worried, and this is happening with elephants too, that in elephants, the matriarchy is similar where you have these 60 or 70 year old matriarchs. They're a little, sometimes orcas can get a little older who hold a lot of knowledge and are really kind of holding together the group. And so when there's a loss of these matriarchs, this sort of social disruption that happens and waiting to see who's going to kind of rise as the next matriarch, I think can be very difficult for those animal communities. And there can be a lot of loss and kind of dispersing. I mean, they're the, and the matriarch is the wisdom holders that remembers where the best fish is or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, she knows. I mean, first of all, so we see in different orca communities, like the southern residents and the northern residents eat different prey. I think that's right. Or it's the residents eat different prey than other nearby orcas. I'm forgetting the distinction, but like a lot of orcas eat other mammals and the southern residents eat just salmon. So they're taught that in their communities by the matriarch, what we eat, where we eat it, historic fishing grounds what areas are safe when, when to go where, when, a lot. They learn a lot. You know, elephant matriarchs, the older matriarch can distinguish way more predator sounds than younger elephants can. So she's teaching them. But even to the tune of like, is that a lioness that's alone? Is that a lioness that's with her cubs? Is that a male lion that's alone? Which is different levels of danger for the herd. She has that level of distinction that she conveys to them. Wow, that's amazing. Just the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, when we have these debates about animal culture, humans make books, humans make museums, humans make the Great Pyramids. Yes. So we make these artifacts of culture that we can see. But to me, a loss of knowledge when you lose seasoned individuals is a loss of culture, right? Transmitting information between generations in that way to me is culture. It just maybe doesn't manifest in ways that we're familiar with. Yeah, well said. So I'd like to play a quick game with you, which is I'm going to make an animal sound, and then I'd like you to tell me your favorite fact about that animal. Oh, God. Okay. 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 And if you need to call a friend. This is like newlyweds. This is like a newlywed games. And if you need to call a friend, perhaps our mutual best friend, they can help you with to uh, identify the animal from the sound. Okay, great. And I did a lot of research to prepare for this. Oh, my God. So this is the first animal. Puffin! Puffin! (laughs) That's a really good impression. So so the game is is I tell you the first thing that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind are your favorite fact. Yeah. One of the things I love about puffins is that they fledge their nest, I think, when they are 
I don't remember how old they are. They're babies. And they spend like three years at sea. A puffin is an eight inch tall bird. They are a tiny seabird. And when they're babies, they take to the ocean and they bob around in the ocean like a cork, ever turning into the wind for this sort of walkabout that they do before they return to the breeding ground where they were born to find a mate and mate for life. Wait, are you saying they never touch the ground for those two or three years? Yes, I am. Holy shit. And that's not totally unique among seabirds. They bob on the surface. Like albatross do a similar, they fledge and they come back at between three and five years, I think. And albatross barely touch the water in that time. They fly though in this way where they lock their wings in place and they are geniuses at riding wind currents. They're incredible. So they expend the same amount of energy flying as they do on the nest, which is not a lot. Anyways, that's my favorite puffin fact. Oof. All right. You ready for the next one? Yeah. Imagine that underwater though. Okay, there's a roar. It's a, it's more like a neigh. Neigh. Oh, I see. Oh my God, I love that. Very good, very good. That's a seahorse. <laughs> I guess that that's a seahorse. A neigh was the giveaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An underwater neigh. Here, I could drink water and neigh at the same time if you want. Yeah, gurgle it. Okay, ready? Here we go. Yeah. Mm. That's good. Okay, now I got a yeah. seahorse. It's yeah, gotta yeah. be. It's there's clear. nothing else. There's nothing else. <laughs> So, uh, there's so much to love about seahorses. I will say this. Dr. Camilla Whittington studies the evolution of pregnancy in Australia. And one of the reasons she studies seahorses is that seahorses force the decoupling in our understanding of pregnancy away from the uterus. So a lot of talk about pregnancy can be very uterus and female animal centered for obvious reasons. There's like three to six examples of male pregnancy. But the fact that male seahorses get pregnant and give birth to live young and that their bodies go through very similar changes as all pregnant animals do, many female pregnant animals do, is this kind of, again, with the like evolution as trickster and genius game player, evolution's like, what about this example? Boom, imploding all of the theories and the patterns that you want to put down on paper. Like I give you male seahorses to just defy it. Mm. That's why I love them. They're like ground zero of exploding our minds of diversity. Exactly. And they're part of the like, There's like anti-critical race theory parents groups that don't want seahorses being taught in some communities because they're too gender bending. Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really intense. And may we all learn seahorse knowledge and wisdom. May we all get to learn it. Yeah. May we all get to. Let's do one more. Okay. 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 That's really good. That might be... A squid? Close, close. It's definitely underwater again. Blowing, is it blowing bubbles? Yes, no. but n- out of a different orifice than the one I'm do- using. So out of a butthole? Yeah, out of a butthole. This is, this is a butthole sound, if that helps you narrow in. Okay, okay. Is it a sea cucumber? It is a sea cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. 
Oh my God. <laughs> so much goes on with that sweet butthole. So much. Tell us about that butthole. Well, my understanding is that through their buttholes, sea cucumbers breathe and they pump in and out water and they pull the water over their respiratory tree, a lung-like structure. And I think, I don't remember if it's out of their butthole that their like feeding tentacles come out also, but they harbor a fish called pearlfish in their buttholes also. And sea cucumbers are filled with chemicals. They're quite toxic if they want to be. So one of the ways that they fight off predators as a last ditch effort is they will just like, and I made this when I was taking an animation class once I did, everybody else was like, oh, my characters are going on a walk. And I was like, I'm doing a sea cucumber tentacle anus. (laughs) And the teacher was like, sure. And I was so proud of like doing the spray that they do. Basically when a sea cucumber is super threatened, they flip their internal organs inside out. And it is like a spray of these white, like their innards that are toxic that they try to fend off the predator with. So that was my final project in animation class as an adult, an adult, but also, so these pearlfish are covered in mucus. So they are immune to these incredibly toxic chemicals that sea cucumbers have inside their bodies to protect them from predators. And a little pearlfish will kind of take up inside a sea cucumber anus and live out their sweet little lives bopping in and out. And they ride the currents in like a sea cucumber can try to stop them by closing up its butthole, but it has to breathe eventually. And the pearlfish is like, I know you're going to run out of air, you asshole, literally. So when it starts pumping again, it accidentally sucks in a pearlfish. But I was reading a piece my friend Ed Young years ago in National Geographic was reporting on this incident where they found 14 or 15 pearlfish inside one sea cucumber's butthole. Oh, that's a greedy butthole. It's a greedy butthole or an especially cooperative group of pearlfish. It's unclear. Unclear. Talk about greedy buttholes. <laughs> Hello. 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 Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, one final question before we send you on your hula hooping jazzercise way. Thank you. What are some things that we should just know? Like as gently used humans, what can we learn from the gently used animals in the world? So many things. One thing that comes up for me is it doesn't seem like animals judge each other for their sexual choices. Mm -hmm. So in examples where animals defy rules that we've tried to lay down, even in our study of them, where monogamous albatrosses, whoops, turns out a third of that breeding colony is female-female pairs. Oops, these termites form lifelong male-male bonds. Oh, emperor-penguin males are having a lot of sex with each other. Male dolphins are doing it, right? All these examples, there's not been a documented incident that I'm aware of, and I'm balls deep in the literature, my friends, Balls deep. where animals doing that were rejected by their communities, judged by their communities, gossiped about in their communities. So that's one thing we can learn from them is that they're witnessing each other making sexual choices out in the wide open and they don't appear to have comment on what the other animals are doing. And this is something that, again, Elliot Schrafer writes about really beautifully. For me, it's just such a diverse menu of 
really kinky options and really perfectly natural options. So there are species that change gender as a matter of custom or maturation in their lives. There's animals that, you know, are cannibalizing each other after they have sex. I'm not recommending that on the Gently Used Human podcast, but I want you to know it's happening right under your nose. You know, they push back on when we try to ascribe like monogamy or feminism or any of the kind of things we'd like to see them represent. They keep breaking the rules. And so that for me is such a gently used human lesson of like, Anything we see that we think we can name, it's probably a lot more complicated under the surface, and it's probably not exactly what we think it is, and it warrants further investigation and an open-minded inquiry. I love That's that. That's another I'm, I'm walking away as a better gently used human because of you and because of all the animal kingdom. Animal queendom in this family, Scott. Oh my God. Thank you. Right? Is there even like another way of saying that? How about animal dim? Animal dim. The animal dim. Animal dim. Animal dim. I love it. Again, we have revolutionized Darwin. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of options. You're welcome, world. Thank you so much for being on The Gently Used Human. We love you here. We love everything that you do and the stories you are telling and educating and bringing wisdom into the world. And where can people find more of you? I'm on Instagram as at experiment, E-X-P-E-R-R-I-N-M-E-N-T. I I have a Thirsty Science Substack, and my website is www.experiment.com. Love it. I love it. So go check out all those amazing thirst traps, the hula hooping. Also, if you just want to learn how to hula hoop, that's reinvigorated my hula hoop passion through watching your videos as well. So have you been doing it? I have. Yeah, I have my hula hoop here. I wanted to do a little hula hoop extravaganza with you, but I realized it's hard to do that on a podcast. So it's hard to I'm do gonna, that on a podcast. I'm going to come over on Friday and we're just going to hula hoop on the streets. Perfect. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much, me. It's such a joy. Such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUsed.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.